0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Bratt. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Bratt. One in seven women is affected by postpartum depression. But as common as that is, it really continues to be a very misunderstood and uncomfortable topic of discussion. Women who experience postpartum depression and anxiety still bear their experiences in silence as just completely afraid of the shame and the stigma that accompanies this easily dismissed and often misdiagnosed illness. Now, public awareness has improved quite a bit in recent years, and that's maybe in large part due to the celebrity moms who are getting on TV and discussing their own trials with postpartum depression. But it's still largely seen as a personal weakness, something that a mom needs to oh just snap out of it, as opposed to being an actual disease that needs time to overcome and needs treatment. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the physiological, the psychological, and the environmental factors that contribute to postpartum depression. We're going to talk about how to recognize and accept the illness. And most important, we're going to talk about the healing process and how to combat the negative thoughts and how to learn how to take care of yourself and also how to recognize when you just can't do it on your own and you need to get some professional help. We'll start talking about facing and overcoming postpartum depression, including some really interesting stuff on how dads can participate and support their partners, right after this.
1: More with Mr. Dad,
0: Armin Brant, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
2: I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can
1: tie
0: his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most
2: kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday, I believe.
0: A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly.
2: Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to casafamilyday.org, take the Family Day pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Valerie Davis-Raskin, who's the co-author of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression. Valerie, thanks for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Let's talk about postpartum depression. I think it's, it's really one of the most misunderstood kinds of things out there. I, I teach classes for expectant dads, and, and quite often I, I ask them at the very beginning of the class, you know, what, what is it you guys want to talk about? What are your pressing concerns? And a, a lot of them mention postpartum depression, and I think they have in mind something that's very different, because uh, uh-huh. the, partly because of, uh, along the lines of postpartum psychosis, for those who remember Andrea Yates and that kind of thing. Um, talk a little bit about the, the prevalence of postpartum depression and just give us a really big overview and and how it differs from things that it's often confused with.
2: Sure. You know, people tend to confuse postpartum depression with either either they uh, over-worry about these terrible things like postpartum psychosis or they minimize it. They're like on either end, which is, oh, it's just baby blues. And baby blues is a kind of minor, self-limited, couple of days, maybe even a couple hours of weepiness, um, but it doesn't really impair functioning. It doesn't impact the family. The mother may feel pretty pretty defeated for a few hours or a few days, but that's quite common. And as many as 80% of new moms have baby blues.
0: Now, that only it you're saying down. that only goes on for a couple of days at the most? I mean, you yep. hear
2: yeah, it can last two weeks, but it, that's very rare. Usually okay. it's a, simply a day or two, and it usually occurs around the time that a woman is, is aware, like her milk comes in, the letdown um, experience. It's highly hormonal, so you kind of can almost clock it, like, okay, my hormones just shifted. Wow, I'm miserable. And, um, again, you know, 50%, 80% of women have it. It's weepiness, um, and in between you feel what some people call postpartum pinks. You're happy, the baby's gorgeous and healthy and wonderful, all that, you know, it all kind of goes together. But it's a period of great emotional, um, we would call it lability, kind of mood swings. But again, self-limited, don't need treatment, a nap is good, dad's role is to, to try to make sure mom gets some sleep. And that's kind of the one end. And it's really important that someone who has clinical postpartum depression, not just say, oh, this is baby blues, everybody gets it. So let me just address the other end of the spectrum, which is postpartum psychosis. And there, you know, that is the terror that I think comes to mind when people think about postpartum depression. Uh, A woman who loses touch with reality, so her, her brain is not functioning. She no longer can distinguish. Truth from facts. So she may feel that she's getting hidden messages, or, or has uh, things have a special meaning. She may be hallucinating, delusional, paranoid. That's extremely rare, one in two thousand. Uh, and most of the time, those women will turn out to have a predisposition, perhaps to bipolar disorder. But again, okay. very rare. It is an emergency, and if anyone has a, has that and has. Um, you know, witnesses it because the person is experiencing it. The Andrew or Yates or whoever doesn't realize their brain is right. dysfunctional.
0: I've seen interviews with the the husbands of women who do who have had postpartum psychosis, and and other people who've been around, and it's interesting that they almost all say, "Well, you know, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't think she was really serious about." drowning the kids or, you know, the, or being so miserable that she wanted to kill herself or the kinds of things that, that somebody with postpartum psychosis would say. How do you explain to people that, that, you know, this is not something that you just sort of laugh off? We this is serious it business.
2: Oh, good heavens. It is a, it is as serious, as critical a psychiatric emergency as there is because, the sleep deprivation that goes along with it, and the hormonal changes, really fuels it. So I describe it as being a house on fire. If you, if your wife is making um, any kind of unusual statements or bizarre statements, or seems really confused, not herself, and is making any hints about harming the baby or harming herself, because really, an even bigger risk is that she'll hurt herself. I mean, the baby's unfortunately. Um, can be part of that. and, and But the, the statistically, the greater risk is suicide, not killing a baby. Mm. And either one is an, an unspeakable tragedy for a family.
0: And again, this is something but, that people need to recognize because the mom herself is incapable of understanding mm-hmm. what's going on. Right.
2: To okay. her, these beliefs that she's getting uh, are real. Yeah. This, her brain doesn't distinguish that. That's You know, that's the definition of psychosis is you can't tell reality from what's going on in your head. Sure. So the voices sound real, the delusions sound real. But the good news is that's pretty darn rare. And so now that kind of brings us back to what is the more serious, more common, or what we sometimes call garden variety. Um, postpartum depression, and that's something that you know 15 to 25 percent of women, depending on what studies you look at or how you define it, have a clinical syndrome in which they, day after day, for a minimum of two weeks, and often it can go on for months, um, feel a loss of pleasure, a loss of enjoyment, sad feelings, anxiety, perhaps irritability. These women say, "I'm not myself." Now they're not hallucinating. They may be taking perfectly good care of the baby, and often they are. But inside, their experience is just one of suffering, and uh, it it is. It's quite treatable. It's quite common. You know, when you think about that, one in four maybe you know women have this. It's really um, it's out there, and we still haven't quite figured out. What the role of hormones are, what the best treatments are. You know, there's some, there's some. This, you know, the the book that um, I wrote with my co-author Karen Kleinman. It's the second edition, so it's been close to 20 years since we wrote the first one. Things really haven't changed that much, unfortunately. It's still something that when you experience, you feel ashamed. You feel maybe it's my fault. I'm not a a, a good mom. You may feel it's my husband's fault. He's not a good husband. He's not a good dad somehow there's a sense of kind of guilt and self-reproach that really is is painful to to witness
0: well and that probably has to make it kind of spiral out of or i guess deeper because once you start with the i'm not a good mom thing then you start looking for any anything that's going to support that particular point of view and yeah. so everything you do so i'm not a good mom because i'm not i'm not feeling happy about having a baby i'm not a good mom because i'm i'm not you know, rushing out and talking to all my friends about it or, or playing with the baby as much as I, I could be, should be, whatever. That's That's got to be the, the hardest part.
2: Yeah. And, you know, what happens is you, you have a new baby and everyone on the planet comes up to you. You know, it's the biggest people magnet there is. And they say, oh, it's fantastic. Isn't this the happiest time of your life? And you kind of force that smile. And that, that, but inside, you know, not at all. This is not a happy time. And I think that that discrepancy between the idealization of babies, we, we don't really talk about, you know, some of the really dark and, and unhappy moments. You know, being fatigued, fighting with your spouse, very typical. I mean, that's much more, I would say, you know, close to 100% yeah. of, of couples are cranky with each other and feel <laughs> um, miserable. Because you know, people are tired and they're grouchy.
0: You know, I've seen some studies on this which I, I thought were just fascinating about the the percentage of people who actually fall in love with their baby immediately. And it's mm-hmm. it's less than half. And I know mm-hmm. a, a lot of dads that that I talk to so so much of my work is with fathers. They feel really guilty about that in a way because you 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 have this media image or cultural image that says you have a baby you're immediately in love. And a lot of people's first reaction is, "Hmm, Okay. Now what? You know, and it's uh, yeah. I think that that's well, got to contribute to the whole thing too.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's it is a, it's it's a well-kept secret and thank you for bringing that out, but in fact, they hand you this fragile, icky, you know, maybe kind of um, scary-looking thing with you know, and say, "Okay, now you're 100% responsible and don't you love this baby more than anything in the world?" Um, and, you, you know, you haven't necessarily been through the most joyful experience of your life. I'm now n- not yet a grandmother, but my kids are in their 20s. And it, it, it breaks my heart that we really haven't, in 25 years, start, started to really consistently tell the truth about new parenthood, how difficult it is and how what, we, what media tells us is natural and universal isn't that way for everybody? And people need to know they are not the only one. They're not the only new dad who wants. Ah, I don't yeah. get the excitement. Yeah.
0: Valerie Davis Raskin is the co-author with Karen Kleiman of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Valerie and want to get into what you can actually do about this now that we know so much about what it is. I'm Armand Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
1: I walk in you drive. So let's make a deal. I'll watch for you and cross the street safely. You watch for me and stop. Think of the impact we can make. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy up? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases can be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. The champ's not wasting any time. It's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to AHRQ.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? AHRQ.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to AHRQ.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council.
0: My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye, he was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Valerie Davis-Raskin, who's the co-author with Karen Kleiman of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression, and uh, kind of laid out the whole groundwork of, of what it is and what it isn't. So let's talk about what's, what's causing it. I know that there are, you, you mentioned some hormones, and then, of course, you're going to have to add in there that there's there's no break from from the constant baby care. There's no sleep. There's probably not as much sex as one would like, or or they're probably not even thinking about it at that point. You're not hanging out with your friends. There's the twenty four hour baby channel. That's all you have to deal with. That has to contribute too, right?
2: Absolutely. It's a dramatic life change. Especially the first one. And we know that first babies are associated with more postpartum depression because by the second or third time, you, you tend to know this ideal picture isn't really reality, and you tend to know we'll get through it. Um, you're right. I mean, it, sex, it, sex, and that connection with your partner. One out of ten couples have not had sex by the time their baby's a year old. So the ways in which couples, you know, have a kind of private relationship and a special relationship and connection, are are disrupted at the same time that there's all this stress going on. Just literally fatigue and sleep deprivation alone can bring about depression. We also know that people have a biologic predisposition to depression, so I mean, that's been one of the pretty robust findings of the last 30-40 years and so it may, it may be a warning sign that you have a mother or a sister, an aunt, a grandmother, um, a father a brother with a clinical depression, that may be a sign that you're at higher risk. And the other thing that we seem to be um, kind of zeroing around, haven't totally clarified in the in the research world, but is that there are women who kind of respond to hormonal changes, like some people respond to ragweed in the air. In other words, everybody's got the pollen in the air, but it makes some people sneeze. So all women are going through this stressful hormonal change, but some women are seem to have brains that are pretty sensitive to hormonal changes. So one risk factor for postpartum depression is having had premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual depression, maybe having had depression when you took birth control pills or having an emotional reaction, that also can be a warning sign. So there's kind of a cluster of women who seem preferentially sensitive to these big hormonal shifts.
0: And even if you take the hormones out of it, you mentioned having uh, somebody who has a history of of depression in the family. But if a woman was taking medication for depression, most people are going Uh to get off of that medication during the pregnancy. Does that make it worse, already being predisposed towards depression? I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out, I guess, the ultimate (laughs) where I'm going with this is. Is there a difference between regular depression and postpartum depression?
2: oh that's a fantastic question and i'm going to tell you um yes and no uh so yes there's a difference and one of the differences is this kind of reproductive clustering um and the reproductive trigger there's also a difference because the experience of of being clinically depressed when your family is undergoing such a shift you know toddlers or other children you may have stepchildren but also when you have this total responsibility for an infant with high demands you know it's hard enough when you're depressed to take care of yourself but you throw that in and so in in the context of it it's really different but women with depression are at greater you know a past history of depression that that exact person the woman who went off an antidepressant during pregnancy yeah she needs to she needs to either consider going back on once the baby's born or at least make sure she and her family and her caregivers are watching her closely and intervene quickly with any, uh, any warning mm-hmm. signs.
0: Alright, so, Pallavi, let's start talking some nuts and bolts here. So, what do you do about this? What, what is a woman well, to do? Because she's obviously, at this point, she's aware of what's going on. So, what What can she do to break the habit of the negative thinking and to, do, yeah. to take steps yes. towards getting herself out of this pit?
2: So, a Huge relief comes around when you say the equivalent of, you know what, we know what this condition is. We see this. This is postpartum depression. Because the alternative explanation is maybe I'm a bad mother, I'm a bad person, I'll never be happy again. So it's a huge, huge, huge change for many women and their and their partners to recognize this is a clinical condition, I have it. That alone brings a tremendous amount of relief. But then, it's a, it's not gonna cure it just to label it. So that means that that should trigger some things you need to do. It tells you you need more support. So you may need emotional support, you may need someone to talk to. It may be a professional therapist, it may be a postpartum support group, it may be a um, your minister someone to kind of share your troubles with, because things look, things feel less heavy when they're shared. And so that's an important thing. It's important um, for, and and the other thing that, that a woman is going to kind of need to do, and one of the things that, that I think I, I particularly love about the community of women who blog about postpartum depression and write about it in books and, and are out there to give information, is this validating, that this is something you can get through it'll go away you'll feel better and tremendous relief you're not the only one but it's also very important not to um to to as you said the self-defeating thoughts of this is my fault i am suffering i'm struggling i feel terrible and it's my fault and so to have the, have a friend a sister a support group member a husband someone who says to you Ah, not so much. You know, lots of women are not the happiest they've ever been in the first year after a baby's born. We see this. It's common. And so however you get out there that message, that information that says um, you've got to change those automatic thoughts that blame yourself or, or kind of automatically predict, I'll never, ever, ever feel better. Now professional treatment's got a role. I'm a psychiatrist. You know this is a actually I don't want to say fun condition to treat, but it's an easy condition to treat. Most women do really well if they decide to go on medication. It's not the only option, but things like Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro, you know, medicines that people have heard of, Wellbutrin are highly effective. But so is a very a couple of specific types of talk therapy, one being cognitive therapy, to help you master Mm -hmm. the self-defeating, that downward spiral um, that is part of the whole syndrome, and to help you recognize that you, you are having a normal experience, oftentimes... A normal reaction to an abnormal
0: situation. Right. Well, Val, let's go back a little bit to the medication that you, you mentioned just in passing there, because I think there's a big concern. Obviously, you know, when people are pregnant, they're concerned about the blood crossing through the placenta, and then they're now, they're obviously concerned after the baby about the right. blood getting into the milk supply and affecting the baby. What kinds of medications are safe and what kinds are not?
2: Individual safety. I can't say like just for any listener in your in your audience. This is sure. safe. This isn't safe. People should talk to you know. It should be a decision of also the partner, their doctor. You know the pediatrician, whatever. But generally, pediatricians, OB/GYNs, and psychiatrists are pretty not comfortable with using the um, the group of medications that are called um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. That would typically include the shorter acting one. Project's a little more controversial because Project can build up in a baby's system. But Zoloft, Selexa, um, which is Citalopram, some of these short acting um, SSRIs have been widely used now for, for 25, 30 years in, in nursing babies. And it's so, a baby has so much stake in its, in its mother's, his or her mother's well being that you have to take that into consideration because the worst-case scenario is that mom says, I'm really severely depressed. I tried therapy. It didn't work. I tried exercise. It didn't work. I tried, um, you know, talking to my sister. It didn't work. But I'm going to stay this way so as not to take medicine while I'm nursing because that's really not necessary for her baby, and it's probably not in her baby's best interest. So you don't want to do it, you know, you want to make sure the baby doesn't get a rash a couple days later. But the studies show tiny to no amounts detectable in infants, in breastfeeding moms. So I've, I've been prescribing these medications to women for 25 years and really, really comfortable. Pregnancy is a much different situation because the dose the baby's exposed to is so much higher. But they're really small amounts. And we also know, how fantastic breast milk is for babies. And so, again, that that kind of Mm -hmm. helps you with that risk benefit analysis.
0: Valerie Davis Raskins, the co-author with Karen Kleiman of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression. Uh, Valerie, thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. Thank
1: you. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and wanted to talk to you in this particular parents at play segment about some politically incorrect stuff and that would be things that shoot. And I know Sam, you're you're there and cringing right now because, because you know how I love this stuff. It's probably some some leftover thing from my days in the Marine Corps. I just like to shoot things and you know, but it's all I have to I have to say. I mean, it's not just random shooting. It is really I think Safety is a is a super important thing, and then
1: you lie, you shoot things yeah.
0: randomly. Oh no 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 no! Nobody's <laughs> ever been injured in my house.
2: Nothing we can prove. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so there was a company called Jubi. At least I think that's what it's pronounced. It's it's D J U B I, and they had a couple of really interesting things. They're not like gun guns. You have to imagine a a racket that's well, it's sort of like a, a racquetball racket, but it's kind of like a butterfly net, also that the the netting is big, and then they have these balls that have a a tether on it, so you pull it back. And then you play catch with this thing. And it, it was really a tremendous amount of fun to be out there playing with my daughter. We were standing way far apart. It's nice because you can play with somebody. You can also kind of compete. You can send people running around all over the place. So it's kind of like playing catch, but you're shooting something. It's, it's, it's not really kind of in the same genre as an actual weapon. And it costs somewhere around $15.
2: Haven't had much time to get outside uh, and play these kinds of toys, but we're headed down uh, south for for the week in in just two days. So I'm looking. I'm, I'm, these are in the bag; they're packed. I'm looking forward to uh, trying these out with my son. So they're waterproof, so I'm excited to bring them in the pool and yes. to set them loose on the beach. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Now there's another one called the the Juby Dart Bowl, and it's a similar kind of a thing, smaller racket, smaller little balls, and then there's also a target, which is a, a net kind of a target, so you shoot it and the, the, the balls go into the net. And I have to say, your son is familiar with this one, because I had it in my house when I was watching your son a couple weeks he ago. He was telling
2: me about it. Yeah,
0: and he's good. There are five sections. There's four around the outside and then one kind of the bullseye in the middle. And you basically just you shoot. You can, sh- you can have competitions, you can shoot. One person shoots them all, the other person shoots them all, and just add up the scores each one of the, the sections is labeled. I enjoyed it, it was, uh, and, and I got the, the perspective of a six, six-year-old boy this time instead of my 10-year-old girl. Next up, we had the VMD Cannon Commando, and VMD stands for Vehicles of Mass Destruction. So you can tell we're already in a whole different mode than the nice play-on-the-beach Juby thing. So, I have
2: to tell you, when I, I read this one before, and it actually looks like something I would, I would be interested in, in trying in the backyard, even though it shoots, I know, but this, this looks like fun. And you aim it like, at the fence and not
1: at like, the neighbor.
0: Yes, that, that's one of the most important things. And most remote control kinds of shooters, you can adjust the height, so the trajectory. So you could shoot high or you could shoot low. And you can do that with the remote controller. This one, you actually have to physically move the, the trajectory any way that you want, and it stays that way. So, as a parent, you can say nothing gets shot around here higher than knee level, mm. and that and so there's no there'll be no shooting the Ming vases off of the fireplace mantle, and that that can be a very tempting thing because this shoots harder than any other kind of remote control thing that I've I've had a chance to test. So, we've got reviews of a lot of other shooting toys and a lot of other much much more peaceful toys on ParentsAtPlay.com. I'm Armand Brott, and this is Samantha Fuse